0: Before the episode begins, I want to give a quick warning that there will be mentions of murder, and some details may be a bit disturbing, so please listen at your own discretion. Welcome to another episode of Odd Hour, where I talk about mysteries, weird stories, and the little known for any amount of time less than an hour. As always, I'm Isaiah Ephraim. For our stories today, we are taken to New York in the early 1970s. A tale of murder, mass murder in fact. A family forced out of their home by some supernatural presence, and two investigators who may or may not have been frauds all along. If you haven't looked at the title, maybe you've guessed it already. Together, we will uncover the truth behind the DeFeo murders, the Lutz's supernatural experiences a year later in the same house, and Ed and Lorraine Warren's investigations within. I'm taking you to 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York, zip code 11701. story that's been told in countless books and movies, the horrors of the Amityville house rebooted after multiple reboot, but with all true crime and mystery stories, the horror lies within the truth. Born on September 26th, 1951, Ronald Joseph DeFeo Jr. was the oldest child of Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Louise DeFeo. He came to be known by Butch at some point, potentially an easier way to distinguish him from his father. And was described as having quote a reputation for drugs and drinking and fighting end quote he would come to have four siblings dawn being born in 1956 allison in 1961 mark in 1962 and john matthew in 1965 november 13th started as any normal day the day had remained cloudy never reaching over 60 degrees all day it was especially cold in the evening, reaching around 47 degrees by 6 o'clock. It would have been a relatively peaceful evening. Butch DeFeo would have been just recently 23 years old. By 6 o'clock, things would have already occurred. As upon further investigation, blood from the crime scene had already dried when the bodies were discovered. It only takes about an hour for blood to dry. However, a New York Times article explained, quote, The Suffolk police said that all six bodies were clad in nightclothes, and that the victims had apparently been killed last night, November 12th, while they were sleeping, Unquote. Patrons at Henry's Bar on Merrick Road, about a six-minute walk from 112 Ocean Avenue, were settling into another round of drinks when Butch DeFeo Jr. burst in through the door, disturbing the bar, and reportedly shouted, Please! You've got to help me. I think my mother and father are shot. He then collapsed to the floor. Several of his friends gathered him and raced to the Amityville house, their names being Robert Kelsecki, along with Joey Yeswit, John Altieri, Al Saxton, and William Scord Maglia. Once there, the bodies were discovered. Dawn, now 18, was found face down on her bed in her bedroom. Upstairs, Ronald DeFeo, Sr., and Louise, both 43, were found face down on their shared bed. In her own bedroom, Allison, aged 13, was also found face down in her bed. And finally, in a shared room, Mark and John, aged 12 and 9 respectively, were both found face down in their beds. According to the New York Times article reporting of the murders the following day, quote, all six had been shot to death. The same article stated that Butch Jr. had allegedly discovered the bodies at 6.15 before arriving at Henry's bar. Considering the walking time, it would have taken to get to the bar. He would have arrived at the bar at 6.22 if he had left within two minutes of discovery, but he had not actually arrived until 6.30. That leaves an eight-minute window of time where he is unaccounted for. Once the bodies had been officially discovered, a 911 call was placed. While there was no recording, there is a transcript from the call that was placed by Joey Yeswit. I will cover the notable pieces. It is a short phone call. It is also relatively comical, considering six people had been killed. Operator. There's a shooting. Anybody hurt? Man. Huh? Operator. Anyone hurt? Man. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, everybody's dead. Several minutes later. Police officer. What's your name? Man, my name is Joey Yeswit. Police officer, George Edwards? Man, Joey Yeswit. Police officer, how do you spell it? Man, what? I just, how many times do I have to tell you? Y-E-S-W-I-T. Then again, several minutes later. Police officer, you're at the house itself? Man, yes. Police officer, How many bodies are there? Man, I think, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think they said four. Police officer, there's four? At this point, Dawn and Allison had not yet been discovered, hence the floor bodies. The call ends several seconds later, and the police arrive within ten minutes. After initially refusing to re-enter the house, Butch was brought inside and sat at the kitchen table as investigations continued around him. He was interrogated almost immediately, at first blaming a man named Luis Fellini, who was, quote, a supposed mafia hitman, unquote. However, the following day's investigation uncovered the murder weapon, a Marlin .35 caliber, which appears to be a type of shotgun or rifle. Butch Jr. was arrested and began to confess for the murders. He explained, quote, it all started so fast. Once I started, I just couldn't stop. It went so fast. It appears that his parents were the first to be killed starting with his father and then his mother he then murdered john and mark in their shared room after he moved to allison's room and shot her in the face finally he went downstairs to dawn's room and killed her instantly officers and investigators both at the scene in 1974 and now cannot come to a complete agreement as to why the whole family was found face down with some theories being of a paranormal origin, and others being that DeFeo shot them execution-style, onto their knees with hands up and then shot, falling face down with their hands above their heads. But you claimed that he had drugged the DeFeos, which would also potentially explain why the family was in the same position in their respective rooms. However, autopsies found that the family had no drugs in their systems. The motive for why Butch committed these murders is still a mystery. As in November 23, 1975, New York Times article claims, that same year DeFeo's trial had ensued and when put on the stand, Butch made many claims. It was known, however, that father and son had a bit of a volatile relationship. The following quote from Butch's trial, while long, illustrates the state of mind Butch was in. Quote, Weber called his witness and led the questioning Predictably leading his client to supply responses that would burnish DeFeo's claim of insanity. Holding a picture of his mother as she lay slain in her bed, Webber asked his client, Ronnie, that's your mother, isn't it? No, sir, Butch responded. I told you before and I'll say it again. I never saw this person before in my life. I don't know who this person is. Webber proceeded to show Butch a photo of his father's body and asked, Butch, did you kill your father? Did I kill him? I killed them all. Yes sir, I killed them in self-defense. Sullivan wore his straightest poker face while some members of the jury gasped aloud in response to DeFeo's courtroom confession. Weber continued unfazed asking why Butch had done such a thing. As far as I'm concerned, if I didn't kill my family they were going to kill me. And as far as I'm concerned, what I did was self-defense and there was nothing wrong with it. When I got a gun in my hand, There's no doubt in my mind who I am. I am God. On November 21st, 1975, more than a year after the murders were committed, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was charged with all six murders and was sentenced to 25 years to life. He is currently still in prison at New York State Department of Corrections and is 69 years old. He's the only surviving member of a family of seven. In about 15 minutes, Butch had killed six people. And in a haunting final note, he's 26 years older than either of his parents ever had the chance to reach. The murders were horrific. Ronald DeFeo killed his entire family, but in a brutal fashion. Crime scene photos show that Louise had potentially risen and turned to look toward Ronald before being shot. Allison was killed instantly with a shot to the head. Dawn's face was and This is particularly horrifying, practically torn apart. Butch was known to be obsessed with guns, and had a habit of drinking too much and doing heroin. These murders are potentially the most tragic things that ever happened in the past, and perhaps the most real. A year later, a new family moved in. Their story is well known. They are the Lutzes. They remained in the house for twenty-eight days before escaping amidst intense supernatural behavior. But is this actually true? As the story goes, maybe not. For thirteen months following the murders at 112, the house remained empty. Its halls gained dust, the staircase fixtures needed fixing up, and stonework in the basement was a bit drafty. November and December of 1975 saw the introduction of a new interest in the house by a prospective family. The house was priced at $80,000, considered to be a steal. On December 19, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz, along with their three children Daniel, Christopher, and Melissa moved into 112 Ocean Avenue. George and Kathy were very recently married, having tied the knot in July of the same year. All three children were Kathy's from a previous marriage, making George their stepfather. The children were very young. Daniel was the oldest at nine years old, Christopher, age seven, and Melissa, the youngest, at age five. The family began to unpack their belongings, with much of the furniture in the house actually having belonged to the DeFeos. The remaining furniture had been included in the price of the house, about $400 extra. From December 19th, The family would only remain in the house for a total of 28 days. They would leave on January 14, 1976. According to the Lutz family, they reported eyes peering into the house from the outside, horrible smells around the house that did not have a place of origin. Middle child Christopher once claimed he quote, saw a menacing shadowy figure approach him, and he remembers the night his bedroom window kept banging open and shut, unquote. George also claimed that he would frequently wake up at 3.15 a.m., which is the time of death for the DeFeos back on November 13, 1974. There too were claims that the walls oozed slime, and that Mother Kathy levitated in bed, as seen in several film adaptations. The Amityville Horror Novel, written by Jay Anson in 1977, which is the novel that served as the basis for the original 1979 film used testimony from the Lutz family, nearly 45 hours of recorded interviews, as foundation for the novel. Though there are claims by the children that George heavily exaggerated these haunting events, as he was very curious about the paranormal and supernatural. He even, quote, actively tried to summon spirits, unquote. How truthful were the Lutzes about their experience in the Amityville house? Were they so truly terrified by their experiences they escaped the house after less than a month of living there. As more information still continues to be divulged about what happened in 1974 and 75, it appears that the entirety of the Lutz's account may in fact be a long-winded and infamous hoax. The story of the murders and subsequent hauntings at Amityville are terrifying, as investigations of the house in the following years appear to divulge evidence of ghost activity, including the infamous Amityville ghost photo. Unfortunately, this is not a visual format, but I will include the photo in the description. It is actually incredibly creepy. I used to believe it was real, and looking at it still leaves me feeling very disturbed, but I no longer believe it is truthful. During an investigation headed by the famous demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren in March of 1976, An infrared camera was placed on the landing of the second story. The camera was on a timer. In one photo, a figure appears in the leftmost bedroom. From diagrams and 3D representations of the house, the figure seemingly appears in Allison's bedroom, which is adjacent to Mark and John's room. The figure believers think has an uncanny resemblance to John. There were no children or animals present in the house, and the figure's face does indeed appear childlike. However, skeptics believe that the figure is actually one of the investigators caught off guard. This investigator is Paul Bartz. Bartz was young and was wearing a plaid shirt and light colored pants during the investigation. His face was very round, almost childlike you could say. A picture of him and John will be included in the sources. Looking closely at the original image, it appears that this figure more closely resembles Paul than John and that plaid print does seem to be what the figure is wearing. I believe that this photo is debunked, but I will leave it up to you to decide. The Lutz family had financial motivation for selling their story, as the family had a severe debt problem. Selling their story to the media and Anson would have allowed the family to pay off these debts and work toward living comfortably. In fact, DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, Weber, quote, said the haunting was all a hoax which he purportedly conjured up with Anson while drinking." Unquote. Even middle child Christopher, who had claimed to see shadow figures in his bedroom, later began to debunk what occurred to their family in the house. Quote, "...many of the events in the Amityville horror books and movies were exaggerated to the point of fiction. So far, there's been three representations of what happened in that house, and not one of them is accurate." Unquote. At the time, he was the only child that had spoken of his experience in the house, But recently, Daniel Lutz, the oldest child, was part of a documentary in which he makes many claims about the house and still continues to believe it is haunted. I don't think Melissa has ever spoken out about her experiences, and if she has, I cannot find her account. It is incredibly important to talk about Daniel's account as he insists that the haunting was real, and he is very aggressive towards this fact. It's hard for him to speak, and he's very easily riled up in the documentary. It's clear that he is traumatized by his experiences. Daniel blamed the hauntings on George, as he claims that George was an occultist and, quote, capable of telekinesis, unquote. This interest in the occult is confirmed by Christopher. He also believes that he was possessed by a spirit, that he was thrown up the stairs, and killed hundreds upon hundreds of flies that would disappear moments later. His experiences, skeptics say, are similar to the movie adaptation, which makes it hard to believe sometimes. Daniel hated George. Daniel believed that George heavily controlled the narrative of the hauntings. He also accuses George of being abusive multiple times in the documentary My Amityville Horror. I would like to quote several interesting pieces from the documentary. Daniel says, somewhere along the line after my mother had met george between george and my father there was an agreement he would only marry my mother if he could legally adopt the three kids with the name change in the social security and birth certificates he wasn't going to put his name and label on something that wasn't ultimately his There is also an investigative journalist who is interviewed in the documentary and her name her last name rather is didio and she often talks with daniel Didio says none of the subsequent families who have lived in the house since have reported anything unusual. Daniel also claims, quote, I had to speak to George and Sir. I didn't call him George. I didn't call him Lee, Mr. Lutz, or Sir. In a conversation between Didio and Daniel, there's a weird interaction. Didio says, so you guys, that you guys being George and Daniel. We're just repulsed by one another on a molecular level. Well, I can't say by one another because George isn't here, but you didn't. She pauses. Daniel smiles, then starts to speak. I'm sorry, I can't help but smile when you say that. Didio, what, do you think he's here? Daniel, no, that he's dead now. They also have interviewed priests during the investigation within the my amityville haunting documentary and one of them says quote, when the stories start to change that's when things start to get suspicious where does the imagination start with the father fueling this behavior Unquote. whatever happened in the house for the lutz family had serious psychological scars on the remaining family members kathy and george are no longer alive but all three children are with daniel being the most outspoken after the documentary Daniel still ardently believes that the paranormal occurred, that he and his family were abused by George. Even if the paranormal elements were exaggerated or interpreted in the wrong way or non-existent completely, the family was a tense one, the children not liking their stepfather, their mother not stepping in at times. George, too, had fervently believed in this supernatural experience as told through his own words and taped interviews. Both parents were religious and believed in the supernatural. All three children were under the suggestion of spirits and the demonic and the paranormal. It would only be natural for the children to still believe in the occurrences as told by George and Kathy, almost like the implanting of a false memory, even if not done with a bad intention. Paranormal investigators and demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren even went to the house on multiple times. The authority figures over them were constantly reinforcing the belief in ghosts and spirits and demons, Even if none of this occurred, and is in fact perhaps an inadvertent hoax, the effects were long-lasting. Everyone in that house was susceptible to belief. In the time after the Lutzes moved out of the house, four families have lived there. The Commodities, the O'Neills, the Wilsons, and an anonymous family who bought the house in 2017. None since have ever reported any type of paranormal or supernatural phenomenon in the house. George, Kathy, Daniel, Chris and Melissa went through a torture during their time at 112 Ocean Avenue, whether it be demonic or not, and collapsing of family relationships and intense fear and abuse only served to exaggerate all wounds and phenomenon. The truth may never be known, because the truth has been repressed and hidden. Being open to suggestion and the supernatural is an important aspect for all those involved in haunting cases, as skeptics need to turn to believers, and believers need to be head first in their faith, such as Danny Lutz exuded in the Miami Vale documentary. Demonologists Ed and Lorraine Warren became a common thread between the mid-20th century paranormal cases. While they were often depicted as a gentle, passionate, and extremely knowledgeable couple in the Conjuring movies, their activities have always been considered controversial. Ed Warren was born September 7, 1926, and Lorraine was born January 31st, 1927. Both were born in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and both passed away in Monroe, Connecticut. The two met when they were teenagers. Ed claimed that he grew up in a house haunted by the former landlady, while Lorraine maintained that she was born with clairvoyant abilities, that she would draw upon during investigations. The two got married in 1945, and later had a daughter, Judy, in 1950. Both were exposed to the paranormal and the supernatural for practically the entirety of their lives, and would go on to become the world's most renowned demonologists and paranormal investigators. They were also Roman Catholics, and used their faith heavily along with a knowledge of spirits to gain notoriety. Together, the husband and wife duo founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, which was a ghost hunting group, and quote, the Warrens estimate that they investigated more than 8,000 cases and more than 50 years of work, unquote. Not all investigations were sensational, but those that were became infamous, such as the case of Annabelle the doll, the Enfield poltergeist, and most obviously the Amityville hauntings. The couple received many criticisms, particularly from skeptics who claimed them to be pleasant people who were quote, at best tellers of meaningless ghost stories, and at worst, dangerous frauds, unquote. In fact, despite their extensive career as paranormal researchers, ghost hunters, and supernatural artifact curators, they were exposed as frauds nearly ten times. In Amityville, Lorraine specifically was criticized for their first investigation of the house where she claimed that there was a demonic presence and infestation in the house, but provided absolutely no real evidence. And really, there was no evidence in any cases prior to this. For their cases with Annabelle the doll, to which they came into possession, pardon the pun, of the supposedly haunted artifact, the couple would present anecdotes about the dangers that surround the doll and claims of death with no backup whatsoever. Perhaps one of the most dramatic experiences and outcry about the warrants was their Devil in Connecticut case, which is also referred to as the Devil Made Me Do It case. This case revolved around Arnie Johnson, who apparently under demonic possession, killed his landlord Al Bono. His defense argued that Johnson was not in control of his actions, not by reason of insanity, but because of this possession. The reasoning behind this claim of demonic presences is due to Johnson's future brother-in-law, David Glatzel, who was 11 years old. David claimed to be visited by evil presences, such as the man with black eyes, and began to change. He quote, gained 60 pounds, growled and hissed, would involuntarily spasm, speak in strange voices, and recite passages from the Bible or from Milton's Paradise Lost, unquote. the family consulted a priest rather than a doctor, and after the priest did not solve the problem, the Glatzels then consulted the Warrens, who began to perform exorcisms on the 11 year old. Lorena one time made the claim that David had, quote, 43 demons in his body, unquote. It should be noted that priests brought along by the Warrens denied evidence of the exorcisms. But the souls remained steadfast in the accusation that exorcisms were performed on David. And according to the souls, David was beginning to improve, ironically after he was placed in counseling and taken away from the Warrens and their excessive religiosity. However, Arnie believed that the demons that had been exorcised out of David had possessed him instead and began to exhibit similar behavior to David for several months before he viciously attacked Bono with a pocket knife, all while Debbie Glatzel watched. This demonic plea, for some unknown reason, did not work for the courts, and Johnson was found guilty. David's older brother, Carl, attempted to sue the Warrens, stating that his brother was not possessed, but was mentally ill and that he should have been brought to the hospital instead of being subjected to multiple exorcisms. Further, he claimed that, quote, "...the Warrens promised his family that they'd become millionaires if they would insist that the boys had been plagued by demons instead of a completely treatable mental disorder," The author of the book that told the true story of what happened to Johnson and the Glatzels was also sued by Carl. Under the claims that the entire family was manipulated by Brittle, the author, and the Warrens, I could not find any information on whether the suit was completely filed or if it was settled out of court. Ed Warren passed away in 2006 due to complications because of a stroke, and recently Lorraine passed away in 2019 due to natural causes. They maintained their belief in the supernatural for their entire lives and have made their mark on the paranormal community but their evidence, or lack thereof, does not withstand against the many controversies that befell them. So what is the truth about the Amityville Horrors, the Lutzes, the Warrens? Were they sincere in their accounts of paranormal activity and during the 50-year time span of the Warrens' career? Was the Amityville Horror simply a concocted story over several bottles of wine for financial gain, for settled debts, Were the investigations by the Warrens evidence enough for the existence of the demonic, the paranormal, and the supernatural? As the Warrens have since passed away, and the surviving Lutz's accounts do not completely match, the truth may never emerge. There is only one thing for certain about Amityville. Ronald DeFeo Jr. murdered his entire family November 13, 1974. Six lives were brutally ended. Butch DeFeo has never revealed the motive behind the mass killing. His story has changed multiple times over, and recently seems to be stating that he killed in self-defense, but this just doesn't seem plausible. This is the truth. A family was murdered senselessly, and the accounts of hauntings and the investigations and I use that word lightly by the warrants have overshadowed the lives of six people who never got the chance to live them out. Their names are Ronald, Louise, Dawn, Allison, Mark, and John. If they were still alive, they would be 89, 64, 59, 58, and 55 respectively. The sensational aspect of the case has forgotten about the victims. 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York, zip code 11701 stands as the echoes of a dark history of murders committed nearly 46 years ago now and will remain a deep stain from the past until the day comes when all remnants of the town are lost to time. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Odd Hour. Research for this was particularly difficult. difficult. (laughs) I am not usually swayed by true crime elements, but I actually had nightmares the first night after I started researching. The murders themselves just make me so upset. And then seeing the pain that Lutz's went through, especially after seeing the psychological effects. That the Lutz children are suffering so many decades later is just really hard to watch. As always, you can find all sources for this episode in the description, along with an episode transcript. There are no crime scene photos linked, but some of the websites listed do have galleries, so be careful if that is not your cup of tea. It is easy to avoid, however. Do take a look through the photo of the Amityville ghost boy. Even though I'm pretty sure it's debunked, it is still just a terrifying photograph seeing a figure in the doorway to Allison's room in a house where six people died. If you know of any stories you want to hear in episode 4, you can email me at irdwriting at gmail.com and let me know. Intro music for the episode is Mysterious Strange Things by Young Logos. Narration music by Patrick Patricos. Check them out on YouTube really good you can follow me at hey nancy boy on twitter and oopierre on tumblr as always i'm isaiah from stay weird and join me again soon for more mysteries weird stories and all things little known